Hello and welcome to the Legendary Leaders Podcast, where we chat all things leadership and personal development related, absolutely authentically and unscripted. On this podcast, my guests and I are going to introduce you to ideas and concepts that show how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage and motivate you on your journey to becoming a legendary leader yourself with more impact, influence and inspiration. So, are you ready for it? Welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I am the host of this show. Happy to have you all back here again because I have an amazing new guest for you and we talk about neuroscience, about the chemicals in our brain and perhaps you are as curious about how the brain works as I am and how it impacts our daily leadership as well. I can't get enough of it to be honest. I started learning more and more about it maybe a year, 18 months ago, and I find it absolutely fascinating to understand the brain better and actually how we can manage our brain and all the functions in our brain to be the best we can be on a daily level, really. And today, my guest is Loretta Graziano Breuning, and she is uh, the owner and founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. What is that, right? The Inner Mammal Institute helps people build their power over their mammalian brain chemistry. So she absolutely believes that happiness comes from chemicals we have inherited from earlier mammals, right? And there are four key chemicals you may be familiar with. Dopamine is one of them, oxytocin, for example, serotonin, and endorphin. So we talk about those chemicals quite a bit today. And what we also talk about is how do those chemicals work? When do they step in? How are they going to help us? But also, when can they get in the way, at least some of them, right? You may have heard about the fight or flight um, reaction, about getting yourself into a state of a lot of oxytocin where you feel really happy and kind of upbeat and you can go through situations that may be challenging in a far more positive way, really. So Loretta focuses on all of these topics and helps so many people across the world. And uh, she also shares her incredible knowledge on her own podcast. She's the author of The Science of Positivity and a professor of management at the California State University. She's a teacher and she is a mom and everything she's teaching, she has experienced and researched herself and then turned it into lessons and fantastic material for us to take in, to learn from, and to apply to our day-to-day lives as leaders in our personal lives, as well as professional lives. So if you want to hear more about how our brain works and what we can do to really make most use of it, to be our most positive selves going forward, then this show is definitely for you. Don't forget to leave a review at the end of the show. We'd love to hear from you, what you think about it and what you would like to hear more or less of, obviously, as I always say. But for now, just enjoy the upcoming conversation. Enjoy. Bye. So hello and welcome, everyone. Another episode of Legendary Leaders, the podcast. And as you know, I always invite some great legendary leaders who can share far more about their incredible stories, who can inspire us with new knowledge and insights. And today's guest is no different. It's Loretta Proining, and I'm so delighted to have you here. Hello. Hi. 
So glad to be here. Yeah, you come to us with a very, very special topic. In particular, we are talking about the happy-brained hormones that we can really kind of steer to make us feel happier and to, to step into a mode where we can take more charge of how we feel, which I find very interesting. But most interesting piece about it is how you actually got to do what you are doing now and what you've been doing over the last few years. So tell us a bit about your background story and what inspired you to do your work. Sure. Well, like anyone, I had some amount of unhappiness in my past and struggled to say, how can I not repeat this? And did not necessarily succeed. <laughs> and then I wanted my children to be happy all the time because this is sort of the romantic model that we learn. We want to give our kids what we don't have. Mm. And not only were my kids not happy all the time, but my students were not. And I saw that other people had the same problem. So that helped me question the romantic understanding of happiness and of the brain and motivated me to keep searching for new information. And when I stumbled on the research on the happy brain chemicals in animals, I was so amazed because they have the same happy chemicals that we have. You hear about serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin. Monkeys have them too, and much smaller animals. And they trigger survival behavior. They are not some idealized, ecstatic state of happiness. That's not what nature is about. These happy chemicals evolved to motivate survival action. And when I understood that, it was like such a relief because then I stopped torturing myself with a romantic view of life and I kept researching. And at that point, I was like on a different page from everybody else mm. and I couldn't go around lecturing people so that's why I started writing books. Fantastic. And you shared so much with your books, but also now you are literally giving so, so many insights and so much knowledge away, sharing your insights with the world, basically. What's your big mission? What are you trying to achieve? Thank you. Well, I know that the, the current paradigm is that you're supposed to say, you know, I care about others and I want to save the world. But because I understand the mammal brain, I know that that's not really how it works, that people just say the socially acceptable thing. But really what everyone wants is to give yourself two things. One is whatever you were missing as a kid is what we're all trying to get mm -hmm. and give, allegedly give. And the other thing is we all want survival because that's what our brain evolved for. And what is survival? Well, we all know we're going to die. And so your future-oriented cortex tortures your mammal brain because animals don't know they're going to die. Mm. So how can we have peace with this conflict between the two brains? And the answer is when you build something that you expect to survive, the word legacy is often used, yeah. that this is what helps us have like moments of relaxing that fear. So that's what I want. So one is, what did I want to give myself when I was young? Well, when I was young, I never got to say what I thought. I always had to just shut up and go along. 
And so when I'm giving myself now that I'm formally retired from my career as a college professor, so I'm saying what I want rather than just saying the popular thing, the expected thing. So that's a pleasure. Yeah. And, but of course, I have to deal with the consequences. And then the legacy part of it is I'm trying to package this information in a way that I hope can survive. Let me get back to the actual brain and your research in a, in a short moment. You said something very, very important here that plays a role in authenticity in leaders as well. And that is, I say what I want. I would add to it. That's my view. I say what I want to. I just pay attention to how I say it, yeah. um, which I had to learn. <laughs> I really had to oh, learn yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But what, what is it like to really be able to be in this position to say what you want to share, the message you really want to share? So the first thing is that you know there are consequences and you have this cost-benefit analysis. If I say this, what will happen? If I say that, what will yeah. happen? So the big thing is self-acceptance about the mammal brain. So first, I can't really predict. Like if I say this, what will happen? If I say that, what will happen? And the second thing is, it's this not like this pressure on yourself. Oh, I got to say the right thing. There must be one right way to do it. And what if I mess it up? But just to relax and say, my brain evolved to weigh costs and benefits. Like every time a reptile goes out into the sun, it risks being eaten alive. And it knows that. And so I'm always weighing the costs and benefits within the fact that really it's unpredictable. Mm. So I may as well just find some pleasure in the act of doing that. Mm. And that's why I like to think that by saying what I think, I'm giving my inner child that thing that it wanted, the freedom to say what it wanted, and to know that there may be consequences. But if I craft some popular message, that will have consequences too. And there is no right, simple answer. So we do need to take account for others and be considerate for others, but also to respect and accept ourselves. Absolutely. And what are the reactions that you usually get when you share when you share your view? And here I see Loretta sitting in front of me on the screen laughing. So <laughs> I'm curious. Well, so first I have to say that I mostly get silence. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is how can we ever separate What is the reaction I actually get from what is the action I, reaction I'm projecting onto others? Because I spent my whole life expecting that reaction. So that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm filtering. So who knows? So I expected to be ignored when I was young. So, you know, that's what I expect. Other people can look at what they're expecting and see how that fits what they were uh, got when they were young. So I should explain that I spent most of my life in academia and people may or may not be aware that academics, although they profess to be purely about objectivity, they're very much slaves to the dogma of their individual discipline in which people are treated very uh, with great hostility and derision if they don't conform to whatever is like the accepted message of the day of in that discipline. And so my brain was always very good at 
imagining the hostility and derision that I would get if I veered from the accepted message. And then I realized that I was part of that machine of hostility and derision for so many years. So when I left that machine, I decided to not go into that headspace. And then I just, I stopped worrying about criticism. I just thought, oh, well, there's a whole world full of people who spend their whole lives criticizing and fearing being criticized, but I'm not even going to focus on them. So then I went to like an earlier stage in my brain where I was just worried about being ignored because that was like my earlier experience was just being ignored. And then I had to challenge that one and, and get past that one. And then I just focused on, I'm creating something, that that's what I want to do, that that's what gives me relief. And I just focus on that and stop worrying about all the nasty world. It sounds so simple. But how did you actually challenge yourself in those moments when you said, you know, I challenge the worry about getting ignored. I'm going to challenge the worry about being criticized. So first I have to say that the practicalities of life count. So if I were a young person trying to put food on the table for my children, that would have to come first. Mm -hmm. So to be quite honest, I didn't do this until I retired. Uh, I took early retirement at age 50, but I had been teaching for 25 years then. And my husband was still working. Then he took retirement. So I had created a certain amount of safety net where I could be independent of whatever reaction I got so that being ignored was the worst thing that could happen to me. It was not that my kids would go hungry and my mortgage wouldn't be paid. Mm. So everyone has to make those trade-offs. And, you know, by having that security net, I spent, you know, most of my good years in that whole mindset of fear of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've had that as well. I grew up in a way that I was very easily criticized. There was this passive aggressiveness that was all about, you know, do the right thing. But it was never outspoken. There were expectations, but mm. they were never talked about. So me as a child, I was always, and teenager in particular, I was always kind of on edge. Am mm. I going to do the right thing mm. or not? Mm. And it took so much time to dismantle that because what I did is I adopted that behavior mm -hmm. without yes. even understanding where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's very interesting to understand where it came from because we're taught to blame society for this as if like, if I just condemn society and fight society, then I'll be free and everything will be easy, but it's actually more complicated. And what I was so amazed to learn is how our brain wires from early experience. Usually it's represented as if it's all either hardwiring or societal messages, you know, genes versus the official evil establishment. Mm. But actually it's much more complicated. So a reptile is hardwired and reptiles leave home the instant they're born because they have all the survival skills they need. And a mouse has a childhood of about two months wow. and animals. And then, yeah, and then they start reproducing. They're adults. 
So the bigger a critter's brain, the longer their childhood, because it takes so long to wire a brain from experience. So if you ever take time, uh, spend time with like a one-year-old, like it's amazing how they're just like sponges that are absorbing and reproducing the behaviors around them. So we're very much wired by our early experience. And what is our early experience? It's a lot of vulnerability because we're helpless for a much longer time and we're dependent for a much longer time than other creatures. So we basically wire in that early experience of dependence and vulnerability. And then we're challenged to build a sense of strength despite that early core. So we all start out with this early core of uh, weakness and vulnerability. And it's not society's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's what I call as the gift of being alive. That's actually a nice view on it, the gift of being alive and that it starts at such an early age. But what I also think is in our society, there is a tendency to overthink and to overcomplicate. So I wonder what we can learn in particular for mammals in terms of the survival, the happy brain, that we may be overthinking. We may be our worst enemies, actually, to create this happy brain. So the simple idea that I always go back to, let's say you're a gazelle and you want to go out and find food and water, but there are lions And a gazelle can't say, well, I'm not going out until they make the world perfectly safe. I'm going to just stay here and blame the world for all these risks. That's not an option. So the gazelle's only choice is to have confidence in its own survival skills. And you can say, well, that's stupid because they're going to get eaten. <laughs> But they have no choice. So... It's your cortex that can perceive potential threats when they're not there. And as soon as you have success in escaping a threat and meeting a need, your cortex can anticipate the future, which a gazelle cannot. And your cortex will just think of a future risk. The instant you have a success, it's like, okay, let's move on to the next problem. And so that's how our ancestors survived, by constantly moving on to the next problem. If I find enough food to stay alive today, okay, what about tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And so that's what we'll constantly do. So humans have always had this challenge to how can I create a sense of safety despite my skill at, at anticipating risks? Yeah. And we're alive today because our ancestors succeeded in keeping us alive. Mm. So a gazelle's children get eaten by lions sometimes. And a gazelle may even go to the water hole next to the lion that ate its child the day before. And so we have to find a way to create peace. And instead of just focusing on risk, we have to celebrate our own skills. That's all there is. That's all we have. Uh, that's that's fantastic and reminding ourselves of the successes and really embrace them and be more present with them as well right let's talk about the the happy hormones 
you mentioned them already. There are four. I, I said to you in our pre-chat that I have been in particular trying to get my happy hormone oxytocin going quite a bit because it's very important for labor if you want to have a natural birth. So I learned a little bit about that and what you can do in terms of hugging and feeling loved and so on to keep it going. But what about everything else? How can we actually proactively create our happy brain? Sure. So first, the important thing is that our brain did not evolve for us to just be on a cloud of ecstasy all the time. It, um, <laughs> it motivated you to go out to find food and water despite a world of risk. Yeah. So it evolved to reward you for behaviors that promote survival. Mm -hmm. And each of the happy chemicals rewards you for very specific behavior that promotes survival. So oxytocin actually rewards social trust. So when you trust your baby and your baby trusts you, that's a bigger act of trust than you might think because believe it or not, lizards actually eat their babies and their babies run the instant they're born. And if they don't run fast enough, a parent eats them. So reptiles never trust other reptiles, but mammals trust each other. But they don't trust just anybody because that would be bad for survival. So they make very careful decisions about when to trust and who to trust. Mm. Now, if you're in the difficult situation of being heavily pregnant, I wouldn't burden myself. And I, and I say this with um, my daughter is seven months pregnant right now and, you know, uh, feeling like she still has a mountain to climb. So we don't want to necessarily want to burden ourselves by thinking, oh my God, how can I <laughs> stimulate my oxytocin? <laughs> so, so it's better to think about how, for, you know, in your case, how it will happen naturally because of the brilliant steps that got our ancestors to create this oxytocin mechanism that rewards us for trust. And the, the beautiful thing is that your baby will trust you and you will trust your baby in a way that, you know, our ancestors didn't. And a simple example is like I'm, a lion licks its baby and licking is like cuddling mm. and that touch. But at the core for everyone else who's not pregnant, oxytocin is about trust. Hugging is like if I let someone hug me that I don't trust, it feels bad. Yeah. And in the animal world, if I let someone I don't trust too close, they could kill me in a split second. So I only let people touch me if I trust them. So touch and trust go together, but trust comes first. Mm -hmm. So it's really about trust. And it's nice that uh, mother and child build trust bonds. But what about building trust bonds with the people you work with. Yes. So that's really the challenge for people today. So everybody's wondering, like in a work at home situation, you know, you don't go around the office hugging people. It's, it's I think has become sort of a, a fake ritual that people have been pressured into. What's really important is trust. And you can build trust on Zoom. <laughs> it's, it's just the, the simple answer for all of these is that it's built in small steps. So you can build trust in small steps by giving and receiving, doing small things for a person, and the next day doing small things for someone else. 
And it's small actions that build up, that create a sense of trust over time. And if you want, we could do the other chemicals or... Yes, please. So dopamine is the core, like powerhouse of when I expect to meet a need, dopamine is stimulated. So in the state of nature, a monkey wakes up in the morning and it doesn't have a supermarket or a refrigerator. So in order to relieve hunger, it has to find food. So it looks around and when it sees food in the distance, dopamine turns on and it says, I can get that and that will meet my need. So in the workplace, that's what you're looking for is the feeling that I can get that and that will meet my need. So how we define that is, of course, defined by experience. And in fact, it's defined by your past dopamine experience. So whatever triggered your dopamine in the past, going all the way back with this company and with your early work experience and with your adolescence and childhood, whatever stimulated your dopamine is helping you decide when do you get that fun excitement of, I can get that and that will meet a need. Mm -hmm. So everyone could stop and think about those networks that define that circuit for them. And sometimes they're great things that help you keep at something even when it's difficult. And other times they're things that drive you to get up and get a candy bar and then an hour later get up and get another candy bar. (laughs) So that's why we need to really work at understanding these circuits and then figuring out how we can turn on our dopamine in new ways so we can take more of those steps that will help us meet needs without the long-run consequences of those unwanted behaviors. That is absolutely fascinating. What role does that in particular play when it comes to conflict? So especially in the workplace, we have to manage conflict regularly, right? Because we are all individuals coming together and we have not necessarily all chosen to work together in this space. So what what would be the hormones that play a role here? Sure. Yeah, this is what got me so excited to understand about animals. So in the animal world, in, in the mammal world, mammals stick together in groups when there's a common enemy. So reptiles never stick together. It's a reptile eat reptile world, you know. But uh, mammals, when there's a predator, they seek out social support. But it's not in that idealized, romantic, like, I'll do anything for you and you'll do anything for me. It's like, I'm going to hide behind the other guy because then he'll get eaten. So you may feel like your coworkers are doing that because they are. (laughs) But the bottom line is to know that you're doing it too. So needless to say, we do cooperate sometimes. And it's important to know that. So in the baboon world, baboons cooperate to drive off a lion and they take risks because they're protecting their children from getting eaten in a group where, you know, I'll protect my children, you protect your children. If we stick together, we'll get rid of the lion and all of our genes will survive. Mm. So animals make decisions, uh, cost-benefit analysis of is cooperating with you going to promote my survival? And humans with a big cortex have taken a more, and we call it like enlightened altruism, enlightened cooperation. 
but when you see others violate that, so we're always uh, weighing, is this person going to cooperate or not? And it's fascinating to know that animals do the same thing. They've studied grooming. Like if I groom you, then will you groom me back? If I groom you, will you be part of my alliance when a lion threatens? And sometimes you groom others and they don't groom you back. And when that happens, monkeys actually stop grooming that guy and grooming someone else. So it's, it's great to be aware of this. But the important thing is to know about serotonin. So this is the chemical that gives an animal a sense of calm when it's in the one-up position. Mm -hmm. And this is totally different from whatever we hear in other places. But in the 1980s, there was research. First, there was a whole century of research on social hierarchy in animals. And it was established with a whole, all through the 20th century, uh, you may have heard terms like alpha male or dominance hierarchy or pecking order. So I have a new book called Status Games, and I have an old book. Uh, The new book isn't coming out until 2021, but my old book, I Mammal, goes into detail about this, and all of my books uh, explain it briefly. But the fact is that animals have social hierarchies, and they feel good when they're in the one-up position, so they seek the one-up position more. But if you're too aggressive in seeking it, then you're going to get bitten, and nobody's going to cooperate with you, and you're going to get eaten by a predator. So we have to make those difficult decisions about when do I assert and when do I retreat. When I assert successfully, I get a little bit of serotonin. When I see that I'm in the position of weakness, my cortisol, my stress chemical is released, and I pull back. And then I look for an opportunity to be in the one-up position And when you get that serotonin, it feels great, but it's metabolized in a few minutes. So you have to do something again to stimulate it. So that's why we're always trying to do more and more and more to get that good feeling of serotonin. And that's why we sometimes drive ourselves crazy and we see other people driving themselves crazy to try to have the one-up position. So from a very practical perspective, again, in the workplace, for example, Well, what is it we can do to drive the serotonin even more, to stimulate it? So the first step is just to be aware that this is what's going on. Um, It's such a relief, I felt, to not think something's wrong with me or something's wrong with the world, that this is always going on. And it's always going on for everybody. And it was always going on for my ancestors. And that's why I'm here today. Mm. And in the past, a lot more of that conflict erupted into violence. Like in the animal world, I want the one-up position and you want the one-up position. And if I let you have it, my genes will be wiped out forever. So I have to take big risks to get it. So today we do have more cooperation as much as it doesn't feel that way. Because in fact, our lives are so safe that, we don't have a lot of physical violence or physical hunger. So small snubs and slights and disappointments trigger that whole threat system that we inherited from our ancestors. So we feel so threatened, 
when our serotonin falls and so desperate for that next moment? So the simple answer is first you accept it and then you have to give yourself small wins and then you have to enjoy the small wins rather than feeling like other people are getting big wins all the time and having this delusion that everybody else is, has some championship life and you're being left out. But the reality is, and this is what I've explained in, in this book that I'm working on through all the lockdown, like whether you are king of the world or a marathon runner or a billionaire, they're in the same situation, you know, or a Roman emperor who crowned yourself a god. They lived in the same loop of like trying to feel important and then the good feeling wears off and then they have to do something else to create it and then they see more threats and all of that treadmill feeling and to just pride yourself on understanding that you're a mammal and this treadmill feeling is a natural thing but I'm so good at managing it and I'm going to just give myself small wins and feel good about my own skills and give myself a moment of peace. That is so relevant. We have spoken about three of the chemicals. What about number four? What does that do to us? What, we, uh, what so, can we do about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So first, before I say number four, a lot of people have other chemicals that they want to put on this list. But I've chosen these four for specific reasons that, you know, you can read the book or write to me. I know other people have like agendas about other chemicals. But the fourth one in my books is endorphin. And this is the body's natural opioid. It's chemically the same as opioid. And in fact, the word endorphin means endogenous morphine, mm. which means that endorphin came first that we evolved this chemical that masks physical pain and opioid feels good because it's a chemical synthesis of what we naturally produce. Now, our, that we do not produce it to get high. It evolved to mask pain because when an animal is injured, it releases endorphin and that masks pain for 15 minutes. So it can run on a broken leg or run when its flesh is ripped open by a lion's jaws in order to save its life. And a caveman could run to save its life. And then after 15 minutes, the endorphin stops because you need to feel pain in order to protect your injuries. So we did not evolve to go around being high all the time. We evolved to have a brief protection of endorphin in emergency only and only when there's real physical pain and we are not designed to stimulate pain to protect ourselves, to, to, to be high. So I'm always very careful about the endorphin thing that we are designed to, to seek the others, but we're not really meant to seek endorphin, but we do seek it. So I'm always careful not to advocate to seek it, but because people do that, um, I'm not advocating exercise to the point of pain because then you will injure yourself. And the example you could think of is if you eat hot peppers, the pain gives you a little high, but then you need to eat more peppers to keep feeling it and you could hurt yourself. So we really need to be seeking the others 
But if you want to seek endorphin, I always explain that laughing stimulates a little bit because it triggers some muscles that don't get activated very often. And the good feeling is soon gone, but you can laugh often. So when would endorphin be important for us in the workplace, for example, where we are not necessarily in some workplaces, we may be faced by injuries and those kind of risks all the time? Good question. So first, I do not agree with the people who say that hurt feelings stimulate it. I think it's wrong. It's only physical pain. So that should not be a thing in the workplace. But laughing with people, yes. And you could see why, you know, there's that HR strategy of giving people an opportunity to laugh together. And then many people can think of examples of how if it's forced, you know, if it doesn't really feel funny, if you're faking it, it doesn't work because it doesn't trigger those deep inner muscles that are triggered by a real laugh. And that's why maybe sometimes to be cruel, like laughing at the boss, how people bond when they laugh at the boss. So what makes you laugh is actually a release of threatened feelings. And it's that unexpected bonding. And what do animals do when they're in a herd? They feel safe to eat because you can lower your guard when you feel like you have social support. And in communist countries where everybody was reporting each other to the secret police and you could end up spending your life in a, in a slave labor camp for the slightest thing, that telling jokes gave people that sense of safety that lowered their feeling of threat and bonding around telling jokes. So you can see how that often works in the workplace But to do that in a mean-spirited way, then, is not what you want to encourage. And that's why, once again, there's always these trade-offs. And it's hard to create it, but people often want to create opportunities to do that. And non-alcoholic opportunities <laughs> for creating that is always good. And other ways to do that, like even sharing funny videos with people, but again, How can you get videos that are funny, but that are not mean-spirited? And it's a challenge, which is why it's so precious when we create it. Yeah, and it's a challenge also, from my view at least, that authentic humor is fantastic. And you just feel it, and you are on the same page. But there's also this awkward humor. I want to uh, cover an insecurity, for example. I actually don't feel safe in that space, so I'm playing a few jokes And, and I find that very, very tricky to get the sense of herd community and enjoyment as such. So I think that's yes, something exactly. to watch out for. And that's uh, exactly why the idea I said that endorphin is not what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on the oxytocin of trust, yeah. the serotonin of confidence and pride, and the dopamine of anticipating reward by taking successful action to approach a goal. Fantastic. Loretta, before we come to an end, 
of the session, I do have another question for you. And that's the question about stress hormones, cortisol, for example. One could say, oh my God, we are trying to avoid them as much as possible. From what I've heard from you now, actually there could be a real use in them in terms of our survival, in terms of switching on our instincts. So I'm not sure how much you can share about this, but what about the stress hormones? How can they actually add value to us as human beings? Sure. So I explain cortisol in all of my books, and one of them is mostly about it, which is tame your anxiety. So cortisol is the threat chemical, and it's natural. So many people have heard of this idea of good cortisol is what gets you going. I don't think we need to stimulate it. I think it stimulates itself. So the idea is to accept it when it happens rather than to feel just fear that allows you to get into a cortisol spiral. So when you understand it, the idea is it's your brain signal that there's a threat and you have to do something, otherwise the threat will get worse. And the first thing you have to do is gather information about it. So when a gazelle smells a predator, the first thing it does is gather information about where is the predator and where is the escape route. So once you feel threatened and you start gathering information, then you only are open to threat signals. Like once you think something is wrong, you only look for bad things and what Mm -hmm. is wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you could get into a cortisol spiral. So an animal is not doing that because they have to eat. And they're saying, how can I escape the predator so I can go back to eating? Because they need to eat like 12 hours a day in order to fill their Mm -hmm. belly. But humans can just end up like, I'm going to look for threat, look for threat, look for threat. So we really need to shift. How can I find the threat and then go back to seeking rewards? And that's the natural way to manage cortisol. So it's hard to do that if you're just triggering more cortisol. So what you need to know is it lasts in your body for about an hour And if you could give yourself some downtime, because otherwise you're just going to keep looking for threat. But if you give yourself some downtime, your body will excrete the cortisol and then you'll have a more positive attitude. So you'll see things in a better light. Wonderful. That is such a fantastic top tip. Give yourself this downtime and really let it slowly but surely reduce. I didn't know that before. So that is a fantastic learning. Thank you so, so much. It's been incredibly insightful and highly, highly interesting. It's been fantastic to have you here. Before we let you go, Loretta, do share with the audience where people can find out more about you, the work you're doing, but also in particular your books that are so interesting. Thank you. So my website has everything, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. So there's information about all of my books and the intro book is Habits of a Happy Brain and other introductory resources. Everything else is free. So I have a series of short videos and fun animations and I have a five-day happy chemical jumpstart that you can opt in for for free when you go to the website And that explains on an introductory level everything that I've just said. Fantastic. And I'm always amazed when I go on Loretta's website, how much free stuff is there available. You can learn so much. It's it's incredible. So thank you for sharing it with the world. 
take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. And for everyone else out there, thank you so much for listening in again, for joining us. I'm sure you took a ton of learning with you as well. Keep creating your happy brains, share your happy brains with others. Most importantly, take good care of yourself and stay healthy. And don't forget to leave a review for us. We want to hear what you think about the episode, other episodes, the podcast itself. So that's really important to us. We speak again next week with another fantastic guest. Until then, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Legendary Leaders Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the show, either on iTunes, Spotify, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com, so that you can hear more about our next episodes. I would also love to hear from you. To discover what topics you'd like to listen to on this podcast, please head over to kathleenmerkel.com forward slash podcast and let me know. You can also find me on Facebook in the Legendary Leaders Facebook community. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to connecting with you again on our next episode of the Legendary Leaders Podcast. Take care. Bye.